Well, thanks, Stephen and the team for leading us in worship. Uh, someone asked uh, us this morning how long Dr. Newby and I have known each other. Um, I got to thinking about it. Uh, they used to do something back in the 90s called Promise Keepers. Anybody here ever been to a Promise Keepers event? Uh, and uh, my dad just happened to be one of the speakers, and I'd tag along with him. And Stephen used to lead worship for the whole Promise Keepers thing. And uh, there I'd be in some green room in some stadium, and uh, there would be Dr. Newby. And we, uh, I just made you seem like you're really old. Um, but he's not. Uh, on, on my side of town, we, we have a saying, good black don't crack. And... Uh, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. We done started out on a wrong note already. So, uh, but anyways, it's always a joy and a privilege to be here. Uh, please meet me in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to jump right in. Uh, Ruth chapter 2. Let me just thank Mike and the team for the gracious invitation to, uh, to have me back and to, uh, and to share with you. I should have asked this earlier. What time do I need to be done? Please tell me. Uh, I'm a chocolate preacher, so you got to put me on a clock. I was at a Presbyterian church some years ago, and uh, 1025, there it is. And uh, uh, I always, when I'm guest preaching, I go, well, how long do I have? And at this Presbyterian church, they shocked me. They said, oh, dear brother, we are a spirit-filled, spirit-led church here. Time means nothing here. You let the Holy Spirit use you, but the people leave at 12. <laughs> so I, I more than understand that. Uh, and then let me just say, it's great to be with Pastor Gary as well. He has a phenomenal reputation in the Bay as just being a pastor's pastor, and I look forward to sitting under his ministry. Pick me up, Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, make note of this phrase, a worthy man a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, hear how she's described. Uh, we're we're going to end here. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she, I love this, I love this, happened. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who's that fine PYT over there? <laughs> Some of y'all have no idea what a PYT is. Anyways, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, Listen to how she's described again. She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. So she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she, was con she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I wish I had more time to unpack this. This is one of the things a godly man does. He protects. He protects. Uh, I always tell my church all the time, man, um, if you put your hands on a woman, we've got a ministry with a bunch of six foot eight, 320 pound guys who will come over your house to lay hands on you and not for prayer being a bit facetious there, but godly men protect. 
One of the guys who pours into my life is a guy by the name of Dennis Rainey. And uh, I remember the first time I walked into his house, and uh, there in Little Rock, and the first thing you see when you walk into his house is a, it's a bat mounted on a wall that has engraved in it two words, respect her, and it's got all these signatures. I said, Dennis, what's up with the bat? He said, bro, I got four daughters, not five. He said, I got four daughters. They're all grown now, but when they were in high school, there was no such thing as some dude I didn't know taking out one of my daughters. So if they wanted to take out one of my daughters, they had to come the week before, and they needed to sit for an interview. And in that interview, I just walked them through a list of what they were going to do, like open doors, and what they weren't going to do. And uh, if they agreed to it, I took out the bat, and they signed the bat. <laughs> Respect her. Now, that flies in Little Rock, not necessarily in California, but you get the point. Godly men, godly men protect. And into verse 9, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And I love this phrase. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Again, I wish I had more time, but this is another thing a godly man does. He provides. Now, this does not mean women shouldn't work. We live in the Bay Area, most of us, where a starter house is like $70 million. Are you kidding me? So, of course, dual income is the norm, but I think what we're talking about as far as men providing, men should at the very least be contributing to the well-being of the home. Now, let me just say this. I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing an epidemic. I'm seeing an epidemic among young men, uh, and I see it a lot in my church going on. They're not satisfied in their careers, and things aren't going well. They hit a little bit of a difficulty. Someone says something to them they don't like. They just quit their jobs without anything lined up, and they've got a wife and kids waiting on them while they're waiting on a word from the Lord. Here's your word. Get a job. <laughs> you, don't have to pay about, you don't have to pray about providing for your family. Godly men provide. So, verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. It's about 29 pounds. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, girl, where you been? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, one of the problems for those of us who've been around Christianity for a while and we've read the scriptures is we can become so familiarized with the scriptures uh, that we become anesthetized or numb to what's actually happening here. So I just want you to understand, end of her first day at work, she's telling her mother on this is what happens, and you just see the lights go on in Naomi's mind. They, they've had a rough patch and this is what Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forget, forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. 
And Ruth, again, here, how she's described, the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, I pray that the seed of your word falls on good soil, that this would not just be a, a session and information gathering, but Father, that you would inspire us to be more like you. Someone's here today, Lord God, and maybe they wouldn't call themselves a Christian, uh, and they're trying to make sense of life. I pray, Lord God, that you would begin to answer some of those questions right now. Uh, it's to that end, Lord God, that uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity, but my, my aim isn't to change anybody. I can't even change myself. My aim is to just scatter the seed of your word, and I pray that it falls on good ground. As my grandmama used to say, may, may you put shoe leather on your word, Father. Make it plain and practical. Use me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the Karate Kid. Not 2010 Karate Kid. I'm, I'm old school. Mid-1980s Karate Kid. Remember Ralph Macchio? You know, he still looks the same. My goodness. <laughs> If you've seen Karate Kid, you, you know the basic plot line of the story. The protagonist is a guy by the name of Daniel. He's getting bullied in school. Mr. Miyagi cuts a deal with the guys who are bullying Daniel and says, listen, just lay off. We'll, we'll enter him into this tournament, and you guys can have at each other then. But I, I just need you to lay off. And he makes a deal with Daniel that he's going to actually teach him karate. So Daniel's all excited. Is that a Dodgers hat I'm seeing? Unbelievable. Anyway, so... <laughs> So here's, I lost my train of thought, um, but, but here's, uh, here's, uh, here's Daniel, he's, uh, he's excited, he, he goes over Mr. Miyagi's house, he's so excited, I'm going to learn karate, can't wait, and he gets over there, and what does Mr. Miyagi tell him to do? Paint the fence. He's like, are you kidding me? You see the excitement just kind of leak out of him because he had an expectation that he's going to learn karate, but he's got to paint the fence. He's got to paint it a certain way with his wrists, and he gets done. He thinks he's done until Mr. Miyagi tells him, no, you've got to paint the other side of it as well, too. And so, you, again, you see the excitement just leak out of him because he expected to learn karate, and here he is kind of being Mr. Miyagi's errand boy. But no problem. They set a date. He's going to come back a few days later, and he's going to finally learn karate, and he gets back. What is he told? He's told, I need you to wax the cars and to wax it a certain way. And you can just see kind of Daniel is losing his mind going, this is not the agreement. I was looking for you to move in my life in a certain way and you got me waxing your cars. But he does it. No problem. They set an appointment and he's thinking a couple days later, I'm going to finally learn karate. He comes back and what is he told to do? Sand the floor. And he's got to sand it a certain way. And he is really ticked. And what sets him over the edge is Mr. Miyagi comes home with a fishing pole. He's been out fishing while he's been kind of sanding the floors. And in a poignant scene, they get face to face with each other. And Daniel says, listen, man, I expected you to move in my life a certain way. And you've got me being your errand boy. This isn't karate. And then what happens? Mr. Miyagi connects the dots. He says, show me paint the fence, show me wax the car, show me sand the floor. And you can just kind of see the lights go on. And what Daniel realizes is what looked like mundane, routine, disconnected tasks Mr. Miyagi was using to accomplish his good ends in his life. 
It was the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard who said these words. He says, fundamentally, the great tension of life is that while we can only live it forwards, it is best understood backwards. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian, says, the great tension of life is that while we can only live it forwards, it is best understood backwards. And I don't care where you are on the spiritual continuum. If you would call yourself a brand new Christian or not a Christian, or maybe you've been walking with Jesus since flannel board days in Sunday school. All of us know what it's like to harbor a low-grade fever with God expecting God to do something over here, and yet looking at our lives, and it just seems as if God is so random. It seems as if he's silent. It seems as if he's aloof. We can't make sense of what's going on. It feels as if I'm being asked to paint the fence. We're wondering, God, where are you? I wish this is a place where we could just be real. All of us had expectations of life. Maybe some of you are here and you assumed when you got married, you could have kids on your own timetable. And you dealt with years of infertility, maybe. Wondering, God, where are you? Some of you are here and maybe you're on your second or third marriage. You never saw divorce coming. And you're wondering, God, where where are you? Some of you are here, maybe you've had to bury a child. Maybe you've got a kid out in the far country playing the part of a prodigal. This was not the script. Sometimes you even wonder if God exists. God, where are you? I want to launch out this morning and talk to you about a lofty doctrine. It's not a doctrine that's reserved for ivory tower academics. It is a doctrine that touches every aspect of our lives. If you don't understand this doctrine, you will never understand what God desires for us. If there's one phrase that I want you to write in the margins of Ruth chapter 2 or in your notes app, because it canvases all of Ruth's life, it is the phrase, the providence of God. What do we mean when we talk about the providence of God? Wayne Gruden writes in his wonderful systematic theology, he says this, God's providence has to do with his ongoing relationship to his creation. Writing in the 1600s, the Puritan John Flavel says this of the providence of God. Listen, he says not only great and more important, but the most, I love this, the most minute and ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by the providence of God. God's providence touches all things that touch us, whether more nearly or remotely. Or hear what the great Dr. Tony Evans says of Dallas, Texas, of the providence of God. Listen, this is tweetable. Tony Evans says that the providence of God is the hand of God in the glove of time. The providence of God 
is the hand of God in the glove of time. And we see this in our text. Here's Ruth, Ruth chapter one. She's gone through a horrific stretch of life. Her husband's died. She's been left childless. She's a widow. She's on the outskirts of society. She's marginalized. That's why Boaz and Naomi are concerned about her being assaulted. She had no no covering in her life. She endures a famine. She uproots from her home in Moab, and, and she immigrates to a country that is not her own, and she's on the brink of starvation, and one day she just so happens to say, I need to go to work, and she just so happens to go to a certain field that just so happens to be owned by Boaz, who just so happens to show her favor, who just so happens to protect her, who just so happens to provide for her, who just so happens to be related to her, who will just so happen to redeem her, and she'll just so happen to end up in the lineage of Jesus. And if you think that just so happens, I got something else to tell you. <laughs> Friends, I want you to know that the God of Ruth 2 is not on the history channel. He's active in the reality show that is our lives. God is at work. So how do I know God's working in my life? Let me give you three things in the last 29 minutes that we have together. Three things, among others, that shows God working in our lives. Here's Ruth. She's from a foreign country. She, she immigrates over to Jerusalem. She's on the brink of starvation. She shows up one day into a field, and right out the gates, verse 1 we are introduced to a man by the name of Boaz who is described as being a worthy man. The idea of worthy, our text is originally written in the Hebrew, it's the idea of substance. It doesn't so much speak to finances, although he is wealthy. It speaks more to character, not reputation. Your reputation is who others think you are. Your character is who you actually are. Take care of character and your reputation will follow. But obsess over reputation and neglect character and you're a hypocrite in the making. He's a, he's a worthy man. He's a man full of substance. I grew up in Atlanta, so I'm... I'm a Falcons fan, which means I'm full of character because suffering brings character, Romans 5 tells us. <laughs> Love the Falcons. I, I grew up uh, there in the late 70s and 80s. My dad's a preacher, and uh, so whenever, the, uh, whenever a visiting team would come to town, I shouldn't say whenever, many times when a visiting team would come to town, they'd reach out to my dad to speak in chapel, and my guy growing up was a guy by the name of Walter Payton, sweetness. Let me tell you how much I love Walter. I love Walter so much I did the unthinkable. I ate Wheaties. <laughs> now, if you've ever had Wheaties, you know Wheaties is the nastiest cereal ever created. <laughs> it will not be at the Feast of the New Covenant. I promise you that. 
but Walter was my boy, and so since he was on the cover of Wheaties, I ate Wheaties, because that was what my boy did. That's the cross that I was going to bear. I ate Wheaties. Well, one time the Falcons, uh, excuse me, the, the Bears were in town playing the Falcons, and uh, they reached out to my father and, uh, and, and invited him to speak at chapel. Dad says, you want to go with me? I'm like, oh my goodness, absolutely. It's the early 80s, about 82, 83, somewhere in there. Uh, I go to hear my dad speak, and then afterwards, uh, the chaplain says, well, look, listen, we got some extra time. Do you actually want to do breakfast with the team? I'm freaking out. Absolutely. You talk about the providence of God, and uh, uh, in the providence of God, we get situated, and we just so happen to sit at the same table as Walter Payton for breakfast, and what I see disturbs me because Walter is not eating Wheaties, he's eating Raisin Bran. <laughs> now, I grew up in a, in a home where you didn't question authority and you had to be very respectful, but this is messing with me because I'm enduring this cross and you're not eating it. What's going on here? So finally, I muster up all the courage I can. Here I'm nine years of age. And I said, Mr. Payton, Mr. Payton, I eat uh, Wheaties because you eat Wheaties, but I'm just curious right now. You're not eating Wheaties. You're eating Raisin Bran. Why aren't you eating Wheaties? I'll never forget. He gets a scowl on his face. He says, oh, kid, I can't stand that stuff. That stuff's horrible. I don't eat that stuff. You know, I never ate Wheaties again. And years later, reflecting on it, 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 it disturbed me. Because it dawned on me that all Wheaties was to my hero was a paycheck. All it was was an opportunity to extend his brand. I was disturbed because my hero wasn't even buying what he was selling. We need people in the body of Christ who will eat their Wheaties. Who will be worthy men and women. Who don't just talk a good game but are people full of character, people full of integrity. Integrity is the alignment of words with deeds. It means I do what I say. So here's Ruth, and we'll discover in Matthew 1, she ends up in the lineage of Jesus. How does all that happen? God drops in her life a worthy man who will protect and provide for her and ultimately redeem her. How do I know God's at work in my life? One of the primary instruments of God's providence is God works in our lives through other people. Ruth doesn't get to where she's going by herself. This is the story of the life of David. 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed king. 1 Samuel 17, he takes on Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, he meets Jonathan. God drops Jonathan in his life. And the text says in 1 Samuel 18 that, that their souls were knitted to one another, that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then later on in 1 Samuel 18, Saul will turn against David. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan will literally put his life on the line, stand in the gap for his friend David. Here's the message. David does not sit on the throne by himself. He needed a Jonathan to fulfill his God-ordained destiny. So what is God saying to us? It is the epitome of pride to stand on third base and think it's because you hit a triple. You've had a lot of help, and so have I. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? For some, it's our parents. Parents helped us. Others of us, it was a mentor. Someone else, it was a teacher. Someone else, it was a boss that gave you a shot you didn't deserve. But in the economy of God, there's no such thing as a self-made man, a self-made woman. God is working through other people. So who, here's Ruth, first day on the job. I love this. She wakes up and says, I'm going to go glean. What is gleaning? In Deuteronomy, God says to the nation of Israel, when you go to your fields, do not, do not glean to the edges of your field. Do not reap to the edges of your field. Uh, literally, leave margins in your field. It, God is saying, when you tell a farmer to leave margins in their field, to don't max out their fields, you're literally saying, leave money on the table. By the way, you could always tell a Jewish field, the difference between a Jewish field and a Gentile field. Gentiles did what made sense. They gleaned to the edges. Jews left margin. Please note that this is God's welfare strategy. God's welfare strategy is not a system of enablement. He doesn't just say, give it to the poor. Instead, he says, leave margins in your field for the poor to come to glean. It is his way of saying, give poor people the dignity of work. The New Testament equivalent of that is it's the idea of tithing. <laughs> My oldest son, man, he just got his first job not too long ago working for Chick-fil-A. And, um, man, $15 an hour, man, that's, that's beautiful. And um, he gets his first check, uh, and we're going over his finances with him. He goes, Dad, before we go through all this, I, I, just, I got a question. You get first, first check, uh, we're, we're about to go through finances. He goes, who's this FICA person? I know, son. They don't even ask. They don't, even, they don't consult with you. They just get theirs, right? And I'm, I'm walking him through tithing. And he goes, wait a minute, just 10% off the top? To, absolutely. He says, I don't want to do that. I says, I know, son, but you're living in this house. You ain't bringing curses in this house. I need you to do the counterintuitive thing and leave margin. This is what Boaz does. He doesn't operate his business off of what makes sense. He operates his business off of biblical principles. He leaves margin. Ruth says, I'm going to go glean. Then she gets to work, watch it now, and she makes a crazy request. First day of work, she says, I don't want to just glean. I want to glean among the sheaves. Now, the sheaves were for the tenured people who have experience. That's the good stuff. You don't ask for that on your first day at work. In fact, the New American Standard says this of uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 7. New American Standard writes, and she says, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. This is interesting. Her request is so bold, so audacious that the supervisor doesn't have the authority to grant it to her. So he has to wait until boss man Boaz shows up to ask for permission. That's how she meets Boaz. She makes a crazy decision to make a crazy request that gets her an audience with Boaz that changes her life. How does God move in our lives? 
fasten your seatbelts, not just through other people, but he also moves through our decisions. My mama has a saying. She says, when we're young, we look like our parents. When we're old, we look like our decisions. Now, I I know, I know, some of you theologically sophisticated people, your inner John Calvin is in a seizure right now. (laughs) Because you have this hyper-reformed view of life where... We don't make decisions. God, God just tells us everything. So I'm, you know, you're, you're waiting on the Lord. Should I shop at Aldi or a whole paycheck? I mean, Whole Foods. So what, what should I do here? <laughs> and while you're waiting on God to move, God's waiting on you to move. God empowers us to make decisions. How do we know that? He gives us a whole genre of scripture called wisdom literature. It's a book like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and others. What is wisdom? It is skillful decision-making. God empowers you and I to make decisions. Well, how do we make godly decisions? Dallas Willard uh, wrote a phenomenal book some years ago called Hearing God. And in this book, Hearing God, He gives a helpful analogy for for godly decision-making. He says, imagine, let's say you have a five-year-old daughter. She comes to to me and says, Dad, can I go in the backyard and play? I says, absolutely, sweetheart. Five minutes later, she comes back in. She says, Dad, can I swing on the swing set in the backyard? She says, absolutely, sweetheart. Five minutes later, she comes back in. Dad, can I slide down the slide in the backyard? Absolutely, sweetheart. Five minutes later, she comes back in. Dad, can I play in the sandbox in the backyard? I says, sweetheart, time out. My will is that you play within the fences of the backyard. Now, within those fences, make decisions. So that when it comes to decision-making, you and I have to figure out what are the biblical fences. This is helpful because much of life is lived in the gray. For example, when I first met the woman who's now my wife, Corey, in 1998, um, she had just come to know the Lord at the church, and I felt unusually called to be a part of her spiritual formation journey. Uh, <laughs> Um, and then a couple months later, I'm like, man, I, I'm thinking she could be the one. There was no verse in the Bible. I didn't hear an audible voice that says, Mary Corey Benavides. I, I didn't hear that. Uh, maybe it was in First Hesitations chapter 3. Haven't read that book yet. <laughs> so I had to figure out, what are my fences? I, I think one fence is, is she a believer who loves the Lord? I think another fence is, There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. What what are those people I'm doing life with have to say about her? I think another fence is attraction. Is she fine? (laughs) Because you don't wake up next to personality. (laughs) Y'all so spiritual. Y'all so spiritual. I know, I know. You just love the way he worshiped. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm not objectifying people, but come on now, you got eyes. She doesn't have to be the most beautiful person in the world, but to you, she should be. It's a fence. It's a fence. And I think within that, God says, make decisions. Now, I want you to go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 as we wrap up this point real quick, because I think it's going to be really helpful for us. Here's the groundbreaking truth of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. Key passage on decision making. You know what he's saying? Invite God in. Invite God in. If your heart is, God, I'm trusting you. If your heart is, God, I'm seeking you. If your heart is, God, I want what you want, you know what he says? He ends by saying, he will make straight your paths. You know what he's saying? Here's the groundbreaking truth. You can't screw up God's providence. You cannot screw up God's providence. Many of us have a navigation system in our cars. What do we do before navigation systems? I just love it. Many of you use it to get here. You know, you key in the destination, that thing starts talking to you. Turn left, turn right. Sometimes, sometimes we've been distracted and we turn right when we should have turned left. But we didn't freak out. Why? Little things start spinning and a word comes up talk, talking about rerouting. And as long as you lean into that thing, you're going to get to where you're going. It may take you a little longer, but you'll get to where you're going. You can't screw up God's providence if your heart is to do his will. He's got you. So God says, pull the trigger. Make the decision. I've got your back. Let's go home on this one. How does God move in my life? How, do, how does the hand of God in the glove of time move in my life? One, through other people. Take inventory of the people, the Boazes he's dropped your way. Let me just say this. Not only is God moving in your life through other people, but God actually wants you to be a Boaz in someone else's life. This ain't a one-way street. My best friend just, just moved to the Bay, known him since five years of age, um, oldest of 16 kids in the projects. Projects. My dad had a policy. And, and I want to be careful in how I say this. Um, the African-American community does not have a monopoly on, um, on uh, fatherlessness. That's everywhere. But my dad actually had the audacity to say, I'm not waiting on the White House to do what I have the means to do for myself. So he would literally leave out an extra plate. And my best friend, Dante, growing up, he stayed over our house. And my dad was instrumental in leading him to Christ. And Dante acknowledged the call to ministry. My father actually helped pay for his college. Right? He's supposed to be a sociological statistic. But now he's celebrating 21 years of marriage, is pastoring a local church in the Bay Area. Why? Because my father understood the blessings of God aren't just for me, but they're to be shared. I need to look to be a Boaz in someone else's life. So who are you helping? Who are you helping? How does God move in my life also through my decisions? But... Let's go home on this one. Notice how Ruth is described. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Scholars tell us that the narrator does that enough because he wants to send us a message. Back in the book of Genesis, it gets a little Jerry Springer-ish. Lot's daughters are worried that they're going to be barren. 
So they pull out some Merlot, get their dad drunk, have relations with him. And out of these incestuous relationships, one of the kids who are born is a child by the name of Moab. You know what Moab means? It means, who's your daddy? To be a Moab, to be a Moabite was to be from the wrong sides of the tracks. It'd be like being from Bakersfield or something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> so sorry. It, it, it's to be from the wrong side of the tracks. Watch it. So why doesn't he just call her Ruth, but Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, the narrator saying, she doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. When the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 shows up on Mary's doorsteps, what's the first thing out of his mouth? Blessed are you, most highly favored. It's his way of saying, you're about to be the Messiah's mother. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And Mary doesn't, just like Ruth. She's from a little podunk town called Nazareth, which it was asked, can anything good come from here? I just want you to track with me here. At best, she's an average-looking young woman. How do we know that? Isaiah 53 tells us of Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Ladies, if you saw Jesus walking down the street, he... You wouldn't turn to take a double take. Now, if Jesus is, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, where did he get his average to less than average looks from? Mary. See, if we're casting for the reality show, the Messiah's mama, we ain't going to choose Mary. She doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. David is, think, is thought to be not good enough. His dad doesn't even bring him out in the original lineup when the prophet Samuel comes to his house. But God says, man looks on the outside. I look at the heart. See, friends, unless you and I understand that we're the Moabite, We're from the spiritually wrong side of the tracks. But what does God do at that moment of salvation? Sort of like The Voice. Ever watch that show, The Voice? Love that show. That and Dr. Pimple Popper. <laughs> I mean, you watch that show like this, man. It's When the voice starts every season, you, it's, it's intimidating. These contestants are trying to get picked by a judge, and they walk out onto the stage to sing their song, and all four judges, they're, they're not facing them. Their back is turned towards them. And they launch out trying to sing their best so that one of the judges will hit the button and pick them. 
I got to earn this. And you can almost hear them pleading as they're singing, please pick me, please pick me. I want to be good enough. I want to be good enough. I want to be good enough. But praise God, that's not how we got saved. When we walked out onto the stage before we could ever sing a note, God was turned facing us. And he said, I want you, the Moabite. You never deserve it. You never deserve it. You never deserve it. How does God move in my life? His grace. His grace and his mercy. They cover me. That's important for you to remember. Some of you are very accomplished people. Got letters behind your name, money in the bank account, very prestigious But I want you to understand, none of that stuff matters in the kingdom of God. I love wearing my kids out in Monopoly. Just love just beating up on them. But imagine I amass a fortune in Monopoly, and at the end of the game, I then take that money to Bank of America. They're going to laugh at me. Why? Because while Monopoly money carries weight within the kingdom of Monopoly, It carries no value within the kingdom of this world. Your PhD, your business, your money, your pedigree might mean something on this world, but when you're standing face to face with an eternal God, it's monopoly money. So, Father, we thank you for your grace. Your grace is enough. We are the Moabite. From the wrong side of the track, spiritually speaking. In fact, the reason why we're talking about Ruth today is because her life is connected to Jesus. That's the only reason why we're talking about her. And likewise, Father, our lives only matter when they are connected to Jesus. Forgive me. Forgive us of our pride and arrogance. Thank you, Father, that you are at work. Thank you for your providence, for your great hand. May we steward it well. In Jesus' name, amen.